everyone. Welcome to Christendom Conversations, broadcasting on Radio Christendom, coming to you from our campus in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I'm your host, Mark Rolina, Executive Vice President here at the college. Christendom Conversations strives to bring you the time-tested insights you need to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. In each episode, we visit with a Christendom College professor or occasional outside guest to explore the wisdom found in our liberal arts education and our Catholic faith. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Kurt Poderak to the studio today. Dr. Poderak is an assistant professor in the area of liturgical music, which for us is part of our theology department. Uh, he also is a longtime director of our Christendom College Choir and Scola Gregoriana, as well as coordinator of the Beato Fra Angelico Fine Arts Program, which has enriched our community over a number of years. I hope we can chat about much of that. So sure. Dr. Poderak, welcome to the, to the program today. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Glad to be here. Um, Maybe if we could start with a prayer here and invoking Our Lady for our conversation, for an awakening within all souls of the true, the good, and the beautiful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, Dr. Potterack, we've known each other for... At maybe 25 years now. Uh, so it's a real joy to be able to talk to you about some of the things you've, you've given your life to. Um, and it's, uh, I think, one of those areas where people haven't given enough thought uh, to many of the things that you've, you've uh, kind of dedicated your, uh, your scholarship and your, your time here at Christendom to. So maybe just start us off the beginning of your story. What was, describe your, your early days, your, your childhood, and, and I'm wondering, in that story, were you drawn to music and... Uh, sacred music in particular in those early days? Well, th- th- that's, a, that's a good question because the answer is no. Um, I started out as a boy, as a lover of music. Uh, music was a very big thing to me. Um, I certainly did not come from a family of professional musicians, um, so I think that kind of surprised uh, my parents that I wanted to go into music. Um, but they were supportive, um, and I had a very good high school uh experience, uh, band, concert band, jazz band, uh, marching band. I was in a, uh, a citywide youth orchestra. You see, I was an instrumental musician. I played trombone. I was going to ask, what was the... Exactly, okay. yeah. Um, but liturgical music was the furthest thing from my mind. Okay. Um, and I decided I wanted to, uh, because I had such a good high school band experience, I decided I wanted to be a high school band director. Okay. Uh, and so I went to college to work on a degree in uh, music education with an instrumental emphasis. Okay. I had up to that point never sung in a choir. So what happened was um, I uh, you know, this was a Catholic college, and there in those days there were still some priests and nuns still around. And uh, one of the nuns um, was a musicologist, uh, and she taught music history courses, which I had to take. And uh, though she didn't wear her habit anymore, uh, she was uh, she was still an old school nun. Sure, sure. And uh, she came to me after one class and uh, said, uh, "Young man, because I was a young man in those days, <laughs> young man, you have a nice low speaking voice. That means you're a bass. I need basses for my choir, so you are going to sing in my choir." <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that was that. Um, there was no taking no for an answer. But I wouldn't have said no because I loved music, and that was the first choir I sang in. Now, 
this does tie into ultimately how I got into liturgical music, but it still took a number of years. We sang, see, she had done research on the music of um, uh, some of these uh, Spanish missions in the American Southwest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And she had done that in the summer, I think between my freshman and sophomore years, and came back with this music. Now, it wasn't the famous Spanish mission, missions in California. They were the less well-known ones in modern-day New Mexico and Arizona mm-hmm. and maybe even Texas. Um, and she, she brought back some of this music. She wanted to put together a little choir to sing it for a few concerts. And that's all the choir was for. It wasn't a standard choir at the college. It was to just last a semester. So we, we did that, and um, the music was okay, but it didn't have much of an effect on me. Mm. But the effect was, we, for some reason, I don't know how this happened, we got an ecumenical uh, uh, invitation to sing at an Episcopalian church. Oh, interesting. Now, it was one of those Anglo-Catholic uh, high church Episcopalian uh, groups, and which I'd never had any experience of before. And um, so what happened was um, uh, I was told, because there were a few older students, uh, some ladies who were in their 40s, and they, one of them said to me, uh, now, uh, the, the, their service or mass, uh, they call it a mass, uh, uh, will be somewhat like the mass used to be before Vatican II. And I was prepared to dislike it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I dutifully went to the my parish's uh, vigil mass Saturday night, and then Sunday morning uh, drove out to where they had their church. And we sang our pieces, which I knew, uh, but I encountered for the first time uh, what's called ad orientum worship. And... Uh, just a general sense of, they use their communion rail, there's a general sense of reverence. I still to this day do not know if they had a valid mass, but they certainly thought they did, and they behaved in an utterly respectful manner, and there was a strong sense of the sacred. Um, your that, experience of the liturgy in, in your parish, what was that like to this point then? There seems to be a contrast. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It was... Um, it, w- it was okay, but kind of bland and f- uh, formulaic, but not in an inspiring way. It wasn't a uh, tradition. It was, and we had the guitar masses, and then we had, I think Glory and Praise was just starting to come in in those days. Um, and we had a, a music director who was a former nightclub singer. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and uh, um, so I, but you know, the thing is, like I said, I was into music. I wasn't, I, I didn't have strong opinions one way or the other. And my experience at this, this, it was a kind of like an epiphany for me. And I uh, connect it as, um, uh, I did not become a tradie, as we call them today. What it did for me was almost confirmed the Vatican II notion of, uh, what is the document on um, uh, ecumenism, uh, unitatis redintegratio, or something like that, that certain elements of the church's... um, uh, the good and beautiful and true things can act, exist outside the visible boundaries, mm. but they have an interior dynamism that leads back to the church. Wow. And so we had these dear people who had certain things which they had taken from the church and loved, and you could tell they loved them. And I was just so stunned by the sense of the sacred, which I'd never really fully experienced um, before. And I remember asking my parents, 
uh, later that day, or say, they said, well, if this is what the Mass used to be like, why was it changed? Right, right. And they said forlornly, we don't know. Mm. We have no idea. And that set me off on a lifelong quest, as it turned out, um, to, um, you know, uh, see if I could be some part of a solution. But it was not in terms of music. I didn't put the two together yet. How interesting, yeah. Um, so I finished my degree in um, uh, music education, and um, what kind of undid it was the first or the, 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 my senior year, I had to do my student teaching. And either I had seriously matured in those four years that I was in high school, or high schoolers had gotten worse, worse or it was some sort of combination of the two, <laughs> but I couldn't. I didn't like it. I just, I don't want to do this. This discipline problems were just too much, sure. but I wanted to do something in music. So as a kind of a stall, um, I, um, I decided I was going to work on a master's degree in music composition because I had been composing ever since I was in high school and college. And I thought, well, I could learn some more this way and I have some time to think about what I want to do. And at this time it wouldn't have been, sacred or liturgical music you would be composing. Correct, okay. correct. And not even vocal music necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was still very much an instrumental musician. But the liturgical thing was something I on, on the side, I'd read books and articles, and it was very much about this notion of restoring the sense of the sacred, of being in God's holy presence. Um, but that was a side thing, a side fascination. So anyway, I, I, I went to the, the university, um, uh, Michigan State University, and... Uh, I um, ultimately, it took me three years, not two years, but I got appointed as a teaching assistant. Um, and I was, so I was teaching college students and I did enjoy that. And my graduate committee uh, decided unanimously to recommend that I go on and get a doctorate. Now that took another seven years. And at that point, is there a career trajectory in mind? At this, at your, you're going to enter academia, you think, or uh, what's your, your feeling at this point? Oh, academia. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what, what happened, though, is, and this was uh, by my mid-20s, I was 25, 26, something like that, I thought, you know, the logical thing, if I'm a musician, if I'm going to help restore the sense of the sacred, I should do it in music. Mm. That's when I put two and two together. Wow. But it was quite a ways down the road. Um, and so I started doing things like uh, taking organ lessons, um, uh, joining the local choir, uh, parish choir. Um, I went all the way out to, I was in Michigan, so I went all the way out to Washington, D.C. to uh, uh, take this course in Gregorian chant, which I'd heard about uh, at Catholic University. Uh, and then I went to this thing called the Church Music Colloquium at this place called Christendom College. <laughs> right. Uh, and there I got to know some very good people, amongst whom uh, was um, this Father Robert Scaris. And so I would see him every summer, and I would correspond with him, uh, you know, during the rest of the year. And uh, he was always very good at writing back to you. And this was, even though email was very much around in those days, it was through the U.S. mail that you had to co correspond. Sure, sure. And he would type his replies and uh, give me lots of advice. And I, anyway, it was wonderful. I, I enjoyed this very much. So by that point, I'm thinking, I want to do something on the side in liturgical music. I was still very much fixated on, I was going to have an academic career teaching music composition, music theory. Um, 
And on the weekends, maybe in the university town or the college town, there would be some small little parish that needed an organist for one of the masses. That's all it was ever going to be. Well, what happened was, um, and this went on for a number of years, I started, I was, I was kind of a vagabond adjunct professor driving around the state of Michigan, teaching a class at this institution, then driving to the next one, teaching class there. And then I was on the weekends playing organ at a cathedral and then Sunday morning at the next town at the, another church and then drive to another town and do a late Sunday mass. So I was stringing together all those part-time jobs. But I was not getting anywhere in terms of a full-time job because of all the jobs I applied for in music, uh, academic positions, they all attracted between 100 and 300 other applicants. Wow. It was okay. an absolutely tight market. Sure. I, was a fi- I applied for around 50 positions. I was a finalist in four of them, but never the finalist. And so I was reaching a point where I was, I was in my mid-30s, and uh, I... I I was getting a little bit frustrated, and there were some other things that went on in my life, which I won't go into, that made me even more frustrated. So I wrote a letter to this very helpful, nice chaplain, Father Scaris, out of exasperation, and I just said, I'm ready to go anywhere. Do you know of any full-time jobs in music, even vaguely related to my background? And I thought that he would write back and say, sorry, Kurt, I don't know of anything, but I'll keep my eyes peeled. Instead, I got this utterly surprising reply. He said, well, Kurt, uh, actually the, uh, the choir directorship position here at the college is opening up. Why don't you apply for it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so send your resume. Yeah. And, uh, um, well, I'll just, I'll just say I, I, ultimately, I did and I got the job. I'll, I'll just say the, 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 one, uh, the, the one funny little thing. Um, uh, I was told I interviewed with Dr. O'Donnell. And uh, Robert Rice, who was the academic VP in those days. Right. And he told me, uh, we'll let you know by July 1st at the latest. And so July 1st came and went, heard nothing. And I checked my email, 10 p.m. that night, and then went to bed pretty sad because I assumed, of course, I didn't get it. And uh, then I checked my email the next day, and I found an email from Robert Rice Offering me the job. Yeah. And I looked at the date and it was dated July 1st, 11.57 p.m. <laughs> well, he, he was true to his word anyway. He was, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, yes. And so well, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, well, and we're, Christendom certainly has benefited by it. And I, I know uh, as you've taken, we'll talk a little bit about all the different offerings and what you've helped to shape here, because mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say at the time you came, um, the choir was nowhere near as... Uh, involved or sophisticated maybe as it is now. Um, now, of course, we have this wonderful new church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, you see the hand of providence in, in your story. Uh, I wonder if we might, before we go too much further, just get your sense on this. I, and I've got one son, it's kind of a, something on my mind, who mm-hmm. um, a great music teacher and somebody who you know, just inspired him to just start start playing around with, with instruments and it just, okay. I've seen him come alive I'm good. and I wonder if, if you could speak a little bit to the importance, there's schools that are always trying to um, balance the resources and, and often a music program is the first to go. Sure. Um, do you have a word maybe about, about how important it is um, that we continue to invest in, in young musicians and, and inspire them at that age? Um, I know you didn't end up teaching there, but you, no. you certainly felt the impact of that. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I, I mean, uh, music is uh, 
music is a very important thing. Uh, everyone loves music, you know, let's be honest about that. But um, I, I would say that um, there's more to it than just it's something that's popular and that people love. It's something that is demonstrably good for people. Um, uh, music uh, musicians tend to be some of the brighter students. There's, there's obviously something that it does in terms of alertness, in terms of awareness, uh, in regard to our mental activity. Um, and it's, uh, there's a reason why it's one of the seven liberal arts. And it's, um, it's, and this, this took me a little while to, to really understand. Um, it's listed in the quadrivium, of course, with the scientific, uh, subjects and th that utterly puzzled me when I was young. Uh, it took quite a while to understand that uh, music is something that does involve order, and this is how the in the ancient world in the medievals they understood it. In fact, in the medieval university, they very specifically would say that um, algebra, uh, arithmetic, and geometry those have to do with abstract numerical order. Astronomy, that has to do with a concrete numerical order. Now, in the, those days, they couldn't actually touch the moon or stars, but they knew that they were physical things. Music is kind of the hinge that mm. connects the two. The, you, well, you don't see it, but you do hear it. And it's, it's the, it's, but it involves a logic and a numerical order that ho holds the two, the, the totally abstract and the totally concrete together. And so... There, there is an order in it. There is an organization in it. You could tie that into the, the uh, uh, scholastic uh, Thomas's notion of the beautiful uh, and those three qualities um, having to do with uh, 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 consonancia or the harmony of the individual mm -hmm. parts, the integritas, the fullness uh, of, of that. And then there's a, what he calls claritas or a shining through. And music is a sounding through of order, mm. that it gives it a beauty and a sweetness that you don't have in simple math, but it is a shining through, a sounding through of the logical, ordered organization of parts into a whole. Right. And so that's very important um, in, the, in the understanding of music, and um, that's why music is a very important art. Now, music certainly has something to do with the expression of emotion and things like that. That's what people usually think about. Mm -hmm. But um, music is also um, ordered sound. Yeah. Ordered and as, sound. as a composer, you must have really seen that. For, oh, I mean, sure. you, you have to understand that well, the structure of the order, in order to, to be a good composer, I imagine. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If music is more objective than people think. Now, there's always this problem of, People have tastes. They tend to like things, um, but they don't always like things. Uh, there's there's always some good in it uh, uh, the, as to why uh, in the scholastic sense. There's always some good that people are going to like, but sometimes that good is not in the music itself. Sure. So people have sentimental attachment to things. Uh, mm -hmm. Alice von Hildebrand wrote a very interesting uh uh, essay of, uh, when she was alive. Um, uh, and she didn't deal with music specifically, but she said, "Why is her the uh, to, uh, the title was something like Why do people like bad art? Mm. Because they attach some other good to it. Like, well, uh, I'll go back to music. Uh, a couple met when uh, they first danced to a particular song. Sure, sure. So that's the good. It's a real good, but it gets attached to something that let's say is maybe 
sentimental or schmaltzy or less than ideal. Right. Uh, so that's the good they're focusing on that seems to be closely attached to the thing. But in in but sometimes in, in the music, yeah, you have to learn to be very critical of um, what you compose, and you, you learn that by being critical of other music. There it, there can be a much more objective assessment. I'm not saying there won't still be differences of opinion between even educated people, but yes, music is a much the way it's put together is a, is a much uh, more objective thing than a lot of people think. Sure, and if we have time, I'd love to get into your sense of the loss of melody. I know you've, you've spent mm. some time on that, but yes. let's. this is a great segue in what you just shared. What is sacred music? And and you talked about some ex- objective standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly love to get into it. People are surprised the church actually has something to say about this mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, that we ought to pay attention to that. So give us your your understanding of that and, and maybe draw us in a little bit into the concept so that we have some some guardrails for our Sure, thoughts. sure, absolutely. Um well, um, sacred music, the way the church defines it, is um, music created for uh, the celebration of divine worship, which has the qualities of holiness and goodness of form. Now, I had already talked about goodness of form, so I don't think I have to re- rehash that, but let's talk a little bit about the quality of holiness. Uh, people might say, well, what is that? How can music be holy? Um we could get into a discussion about are there certain specific musical qualities that lend music more towards being considered holy? I think that's a legitimate object of discussion. I'm not going to get into that uh, right now uh, but I was, because I don't want to go beyond what the church actually says. So the church doesn't say uh, if it has 16th notes, it's not holy. You know, right. It doesn't get into things like that. But... Um, it, the, the, the notion of the holy or the sacred is that which is set aside. Um, and it's, it's not a tautology. It's the way human life works. Um, there's music, or, or even if it's not music, it's something like I like to take pre, a priest's vestments, the chasuble. The chasuble was not originally a sacred vestment. It was a vestment that Roman men wore. Now, it was dignified, there is nothing dumb or silly about it. It's a very dignified vestment. And so, you know, what are the early Christians going to start with? You know, they're not going to dress up like a Jewish high priest. That would be confusing. Not going to dress up like a pagan priest. That would be confusing. They take, took the most dignified, respectable thing they could. But secular fashions change over time. So ultimately, the chasuble was just something that, you know, an ordinary man wouldn't have worn anymore. Right. But it r- remains... And, and, and due to its close association with the Mass, it becomes that which is set aside for divine worship. Um, and so I would say it's the same thing with music. And then I would, uh, and then, but someone might ask, well, I like music X, this piece of pop music. Why can't that be set aside? And I'd say it's too late. It's too late. We have been around in Western civilization for 2,000 years, mm-hmm. and we have developed certain types of music that have been set aside for that ha, that you consider have the quality of uh, sacrality of, of holiness um, even something like an instrument you you play a recording of one note or one chord on an organ ask someone to do word association they're ultimately going to say something like god church sacred holy something like that you have someone strum a, a chord on a guitar 
and have them do the word association, I don't think anyone would say church, God, stained glass window sound or anything like that. So there are certain things that just get set aside over time, irregardless of their intrinsic qualities, which we could talk about, but I'm not going to talk about that for now. Um, uh, they're set aside, um, and then they have the quality of holiness. So that's the thing that is the most important thing. Now, along it should be well made, should have goodness of form, but they have to have sacral references. Um, so uh, I'll just I'll just stop there. And if you have any questions or anything you'd like to ask, sure. Or, yeah. It, well, it's it, it's fascinating. It opens up a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of avenues. But maybe we can speak to it a little bit in the context of of what we do here at Christendom. Some mm-hmm. of the things that we really um, we that adorn the liturgy that are essential part of of how we approach things. Let's just start maybe with Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is Gregorian chant? What what's a little bit about the background and why? Is it particularly fitting for the liturgy? Sure. Well, um, the the why is it particularly fitting of all sorts of sacred music because it is the the music of the Roman rite. Um, it's uh, there's at least a thousand year history of the creation of Gregorian chant. Some of it may indeed go back to um, uh, the synagogue. There are various arguments about that. Uh, some of the chants. We have been able to, like, for example, uh, one of the psalm tones is very similar to something, uh, a group of Jews who were isolated in um, uh, the mountainous part of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and uh, a music ethnomusicologist uh, was able to record their music, and what we call psalm tone mode one is very similar to something they use. Not exactly the same, but very wow. similar. So there's there's a possibility some of these things may have come out of the synagogue. Wow. Um, and I think certain things like what we call sanctus, um, uh, oh gee, was it? Six, uh, no, it's 18. Uh, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. That... I was hoping we'd get you to sing oh. on the program, so I, I, you, you may... Okay. <laughs> made it possible there. Thank you. Okay. So, so that is probably very old. Or um, since I, I, I'm, I've got an open door to singing, I'll do a few more. <laughs> you know, pater noster quies in celis. That actually is made up of a combination of five notes, not even a mode yet, that we find commonly in some other early chants, uh, flectamus genui, genua, uh, on the Holy, Holy Saturday liturgy, this fine note formula, which we find in some Byzantine chants. Mm. Um, so this is almost a pre-modal thing that if it doesn't go back to the synagogue, it's something that you would have found in the Mediterranean basin. Uh, this is very ancient. I was going to say, we're tapping into church history here. This is just it's Exactly. What an exciting... Most people probably don't realize that. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, I don't think yeah. I don't think yeah. they do, and I certainly didn't early on. But so you have these very simple chants. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Those are those just two pitches. Those are those are very ancient, mo- mm. most likely. Now the more complicated, the more sophisticated chants, like the propers, um, those emerge. We know, well, see, the thing is, we didn't really have a notational system until 8th, ninth century that you start to get something resembling a notational system. Um, and 
so those those probably go back earlier, but they just were never written down. They were done by memory. And there's this whole thing about, um, which I don't have an opinion on, but uh, some Gregorian chant was originally called Gregorian because they thought Pope Gregory the Great had something to do with it. There are other scholars who say that that might have been a misunderstanding that it was Gre- Gregory the Third, hmm. uh, who actually a few centuries later might might have been given that name. Uh, I like I said, I'm I'm a little bit agnostic on w- what is true because nothing was written down in those days uh, in any sort of discernible notation. Um, so, um, the, but those are growing in the in the early um, first millennium. Uh, they're certainly in place by the end of the first millennium. And then uh, in the second millennium, uh, in the Middle Ages, you get the, the ordinaries, you get the, the, some of the Gregorian hymns, you get the, all those sequences like the DAC ray. Those are definitely emerging. Mm. And it kind of comes to a close uh, in the 16th century um, when you start to get the emergence of, 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 of actual polyphony. Uh, but yes, it's... It is the premier music of the Roman Rite. Popes in the 20th century have said this is the official music of the Roman Rite. And if that's all you sing, you're fine mm-hmm. uh, because that is the official music. Everything else has to in some sense be seen in reference to Gregorian chant, at least in the Roman Rite. And this is where Pius XII said that Gregorian chant is the supreme model mm. of sacred music. Um, and this would have been in his motu proprio of, of 1903. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked about the popular conceptions of things. Um, this is another one where if you have a movie of any kind, mm-hmm. you know, they probably will to, to get the sense of, you know, a sacred space or some mm-hmm. spiritual moment. Gregorian mm-hmm. chant always seems to be the thing that pops up. I don't know if you've noticed that in, in oh, sure. popular culture. But so you mentioned uh, sacred polyphony. Uh, maybe just give a couple of minutes on that and then. Mm-hmm. That seems to admit maybe more uh, a little bit more of discernment between what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Maybe sure. uh, more so than the Gregorian chant. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, yeah. So you you do have some pushback against polyphony in its early days, mm-hmm. um, uh, and even as late as the Council of Trent in the 16th century, there was a minority opinion. It was a minority opinion, but the opinion was let's just get rid of everything except Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. Didn't pass, uh, didn't pass muster. There's great, the, the, the church talked about, you know, this is the house of God, so we have to maintain this sense of, of, of the holy. Um, but they, they still kind of left it open to individual bishops to deal with that. Um, polyphony starts in the Middle Ages, uh, in the, actually the late first millennium. Uh, then you have in the early second millennium you have these various schools uh, Notre Dame, uh, Santiago de Compostela along the uh, pilgrimage routes, uh, where these big cathedrals developed um, styles of medieval polyphony, which we have been able to uh, uh, discern. I, I should say uh, transcribe from some very uh, early uh, rhythmic notation. Um, uh, like I said, it it, it in so, so you do have it occurring in, in these places with universities. You do have some pushback against it, and you do have the emergence of secular music, which had been around to some degree, but it picks up even more. And then you have composers 
kind of taking secular polyphony and then transforming it into mm. sacred polyphony. And that makes a lot of churchmen nervous and uncomfortable, and rightly so. Um, th- but this gets us into another realm of the sacred. Um, some of these where they took a secular tune and polyphony and uh, transformed it, they did more than just changing the words. Mm. They changed the rhythm they changed other things. And I could still see people at the time being um, uh, concerned about, oh, but you might recognize the melody. Uh, like there's a popular melody, uh, L'homme armé, the mm. armed man, mm. uh, that was used in some masses. Now, in, in many cases, what they would do is they would take the melody and put it in the tenor voice and stretch the notes out so they were so long that you really couldn't tell it was there. It was almost like they were trying to see if they could get away with something, sure. <laughs> a, a little inside joke. But, but the point is, the, the connection between the sacred and the secular is actually closer in those days. Mm. Today, you, anyone who hears L'Homme Armé, especially done in a very arrhythmical version, would say, oh, that kind of sounds like Gregorian chant, because oh, it's, it's Dorian mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one mm. would be upset by it, or uh, um, unless it was done in a really peppy, rhythmical way. Um, so... The, the distinction between the sacred and the secular today is even greater. So that's something that you do have to take into, keep into mind to say, does it seem to sound like secular music? It might have to them in their day, but if it doesn't in our day, okay, you know, that things have changed. Sure. Uh, so there can be a certain evolution that happens over time. So to do the Lomar May Mass of Palestrina, he even wrote one, most people wouldn't bat an eyelash about it. They 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 wouldn't get the connection at all. You have to you have to have taken some music history courses to realize that uh, he was maybe trying to push the limits a little bit and get away with something. Uh, but uh, anyway, so that's that's another aspect of, of of polyphony. But generally speaking, especially today, uh, polyphony is is uh, recognized by the vast majority of people as something that sounds sacred, and and they wouldn't bat an eyelash at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's a, a good point for us to take a quick break for some messages. We'll be right back with Dr. Kurt Otterack on Christendom Conversations. As Catholics today, we are facing a culture that seeks to sweep away the roots and reasons for our faith. All of us need help upholding our Catholic beliefs. That's why each week, Christendom College's Dr. Timothy O'Donnell opens the riches of Catholic education to all Catholics in his free Principles video series. You can join Dr. O'Donnell for five minutes each week and learn from the best thinkers, hear amazing stories from history, and get spiritual tips to strengthen your Catholic faith. Sign up today at principlesforyourweek.com. That's principlesforyourweek.com. And welcome back to Christendom Conversations, where we offer time-tested insights to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. I'm Mark Rolina, here with Dr. Kurt Potterack, Assistant Professor and Director of our Music Program at Christendom College. So just maybe one last point, we're, we're getting to some of the, the background, and I think to be just fascinating, we're really tapping into um, almost an archaeological sense of, of music. And you had mentioned when we were just talking on the break uh, about written music mm-hmm. and kind of the evolution where that started to to find its way uh, into the scene. Maybe if you could give just a moment on that. Sure, absolutely. Yes. Um, well, 
Western musical musical notation is the most sophisticated musical notation on the face of the earth. Mm. You do have other cultures, such as in the Orient, where they have a kind of a traditional notation, but it's kind of odd from our standpoint. Um, like, for example, I was uh, looking at Korean harp notation, and um, it's it's um, they'll give you the pitch first in a Korean symbol and then a Chinese symbol. Then they'll tell you what string you're supposed to play it on. And then they'll tell you if you're supposed to use the fingernail or the fleshy part of the thumb. But they'll say nothing about rhythm. Mm. You're just supposed to pick that up from your teacher. So it's it's a combination of being incredibly specific, but then incredibly general. Um, whereas we have rhythmic notation in uh, uh, modern Western notation. Well, where does that come from? Well, Gregorian chant really did not have did not indicate rhythm. That, that's a big debate in the field. Now, there are certain common ways of performing Gregorian chant rhythmically, which I, I engage in. But if you look at the scholarship, there's this big debate about what was Gregorian rhythm originally like. Uh, and, and people will tend to look at uh, 9th, 10th century manuscripts and say, well, okay, this maybe gives us some sort of idea. And there are all sorts of differing opinions. But anyway, what happens is by the time you get to the 14th century, you have what most people think of as uh, Gregorian notation. It's the square notes, okay? But the square notes really don't tell you anything about rhythm other than you just assume every note gets about the same rhythmic value, and that's how we do it, and it works. But there was a certain point at which when they start getting into polyphony, where you have two or more parts singing different uh, uh, things that have to align so you have to get more specific. Mm. Um, what? How do you get a note to be uh, twice the, the value of you know the one count, or three times, or moreover? Um, and and there are a variety of things that start happening, uh, which some of which I'll skip, but I'll just say ultimately this notion of having um, flags, having no, note heads that are open or filled in that ultimately, after a few attempts of several centuries by men who usually were either students or professors at medieval universities teaching in the quadrivium, they ultimately come up with a system that looks reasonably like what we have today. Interesting. Okay. Now, it does undergo a certain further development, um, but it's really in the Middle Ages that that picks up precisely because of polyphony, and they want to coordinate different parts that aren't simply all going to sing the same thing. Um, and now, but how did we even get this notion? Because I was telling you about the Korean harp notation. There, there's no staff mm. at all. Where does the staff come from? The staff comes from this 10th, century, 10th 11th century monk whose name is Guido. It mm. sounds kind of funny, like he's from <laughs> New Jersey or something. But right. <laughs> Guido d'Arezzo, the village of Arezzo. Um, and he was a Benedictine monk. And he was a kind of an innovator because he had to deal with teaching boys Gregorian chant. And if you dealt with boys and, you know, or children of either sex, but especially boys, they've got a lot of energy and the short attention span. Right, right. And the only thing you could do in those days was teach them to memorize these long chants. But what he finally did was he came up with first just one line to indicate mm. where do is, and then two or three, and he ultimately had four lines. And he came up with this system of, uh, you know, before him, there was no do. Actually, do came a little later, but he created the solfeggio 
system. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, except it was ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la. And then when you attach that uh, to the pitch, uh, peop- uh, it sounds funny. It sounds like you're creating more work, but actually that helped them to memorize because they had this syllable attached to the pitch. Right. And then he created the notation also. Um, and he created it based upon a hymn to St. John the Baptist, Ut Queant Laxis, Ut was what Do was. And so each subphrase began a step higher. Ut Queant Laxis, Resonari Fibris, Mira Gestorum, Famuli Tuorum, Sove Paluti, Labireati Sancte Ioannis. So he only utre mi fa sola. Um, uh, it was C that was mm-hmm. added. Sancte Ioannis because they didn't have a J. It, it was an I that was added later on. And then at some point in the 18th century, the, I think the French decided ut was ugly and then make it do. <laughs> right. uh, but anyway, so he had a big role in the very early part of creating the um, notation, and then further development happened, I think, I would argue, because of the the medieval universities um, in terms of rhythmic notation. That took uh, two or three hundred years, but they finally came up with something that's pretty close to what we have today. Wow. Well, we'll leave for another conversation whether we're using Guido's system for good or ill most often now. (laughs) Uh, Maybe give a little sense of your um, approach to, to... the Christendom Choir and the, and the program, you know, you've helped you've helped to build here. Um, you know, it's it, it's always amazing to see students of varying abilities come in, and just the wonderful thing you're able to to achieve with them. And then you, the dedication of the chapel, I think, was just a a marvelous expression of uh, all the work that's gone into training these young people. So, what do you what do you look to to do with the program? And then you know, maybe take us through a, a student who walks in the door as a as a freshman and, and as a senior, what are you hoping they are able to, to achieve? Oh, well, uh, what am I hoping with, with uh, an incoming freshman? Uh, first of all, I'm hoping for a lot of incoming freshman men who will <laughs> join the choir. That's always a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, uh, women are certainly more than welcome in the mixed choir. Um, I'm looking for people who love music, who have had some sort of a musical background, and are willing to put up with a lot of hard work. Mm. Now, we do not rehearse as many hours as the sports teams practice, uh, but we do uh, come in a close second. Um, and so this is this is something that uh, I'm looking for people who are willing to do hard work. Uh, music is one of those things, I think, like sports, that the end result is enjoyable. The means of getting there isn't always quite so enjoyable. Sure, sure. And so you got to be up for some hard work and for setting some time aside and it will pay off and it will all fairly quickly, the, the, there will be results. Uh, fortunately, there are older students who, you know, who kind of help the younger ones on the way, but um, um, yeah, and they have to put up with me yelling at them occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to, but uh, I don't know, maybe as a parent, it's the same thing. You just hear yourself yelling and it Kind of gets the job done sometimes, but it's not really in the end the best way to do things. But anyway, <laughs> when you, you've got this beautiful uh, pipe organ now, donated organ there too, which is what does that do to enhance uh, the the program? And then you have mm-hmm. some some scholarships that are associated with it as well. Sure, you help administer. Sure, yeah. Well, we have both choral and vocal scholarships. Uh, I'm sorry, choral. I'm sorry, 
vocal and organ scholarships. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so um, the, the the vocal scholarships are in each section. We, we try to get a, a section leader or two through the vocal scholarships. Um, but the original, the donor wanted to train Catholic parish organists, and I couldn't agree more with the donor. Um, so that so the much bigger scholarships are for students who will play organ here, and they'll be trained. As a matter of fact, our uh, principal organist who graduated last year is now has a job, a full-time job at a parish. Um, up, uh, well, I won't, maybe I shouldn't say where, but uh, we've 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 had some fruit already. This has been a problem that has been going on that back, gee, my goodness, 30 years ago when I was, I used to be a member of the American Guild of Organists, uh, the Lansing, Michigan chapter, and so I would hobnob with Protestants as well. And they were kind of going through their pre-Vatican II thing that we had already gone through like a few, a number of decades later. And so they were losing organists. Mm. Um, because they were lo- they were losing the number of services that in which organ was used, and so I, when I was in grad school, though, like I said, I was not involved in church music. They had a church music program at Michigan State University that closed down finally hmm. in the ni- mid nineteen nineties, and um, kind of sad. So there were some. Uh, so the donor saw those things. There were uh, good pastors who wanted organ music but there weren't people who could do it. So uh, she wanted us to be a part of the solution. And uh, so we have these scholarships. Um, uh, there's a principal uh, sco- organist scholarships, uh, an assistant organist scholarship. And then there are uh, currently two other scholarships for beginning organists. They ha- can have, they, they need to at least have had some piano background um, but even if they've had a little organ background, that's okay. And if they audition uh, and, and do well, they get a scholarship and they can work their way through the program and get even more training. And incidentally, you don't have to have a scholarship to be in the program. Sure, It's just nice to get one, but we're, <laughs> right. we're certainly open to, to others who um, have had some background. And if they audition and uh, we feel they're suitable, then, then they're more than welcome to be a part of our, our degree program. When, and the the work we do in the area of uh, the fine arts, uh, this the new organ gives us some opportunities, maybe even to have some um, recitals here on on sure. site, maybe that we weren't able to do in the old church. Is oh, sure, right? yeah. sure, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And we're on the verge of a liturgical music track in theology. I just thought maybe a, a quick word on that before we our time runs out. Um, oh, give us your your quick vision about it, and and what is it? How does it fit? I guess in with with mm-hmm the theology department and some of the things that you um, are hoping to achieve? Sure. Well, let, let me just very quickly say that I don't think I said this. Um, we, we definitely currently have um, a liturgical music minor, and then we have an organ emphasis liturgical music minor. But we, we are on track to have a track in liturgical music within the theology major. Now, um, it, it just uh, so it's clear to the musicians uh, out there in the listening audience, it is going to be the equivalent, I would say, of um, a Bachelor of Arts degree in music, the track itself. Uh, uh, but it is encased within the, the theology major, so there are some extra courses in theology uh, that you would you would take um, a number of them specifically related to the theology of sacred music, 
and of liturgical worship. So um, this would be a good way for those of you who both want to be a practicing uh, church musician as well as a theoretician. And I would point to, uh, well, at least two people, um, one, our uh, former chaplain whom I had gotten to know very well, Father Robert Skiris, who had, um, uh, he actually got his doctorate in the theology of sacred music mm. at the University of Bonn. So he was both a practitioner and a, uh, and a uh, theoretician. Um, and then also uh, 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 the late Cardinal, uh, uh, Pope Benedict, um, though he didn't specifically have degrees in music, he did a lot of heavy theology, heavy lifting of theology of sacred music mm. in his writings. So uh, it will give that liberal arts theoretical background, but with, I think, a legitimate, uh, 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 sufficient practical training that could allow such a person to both practice or go on to graduate school and 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 get a further degree or two in that. Wonderful. Wonderful. As you mentioned, just around the corner, so please, everyone, stay tuned for that. We definitely will be having uh, some additional information coming out. Unfortunately, Dr. Potterek, we're out of time. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. I have a whole list of other things here we didn't get to, including ballroom dancing. Oh. I want to hear more about that uh, that you have on your profile. So um, please, I hope you'll be back with us in the future. I'd love to. I'll just let me know. Sure. Well, we must sign off for today. We want to thank everyone who has tuned in. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at radio at christendom.edu. For more information about how Christendom College is helping its students learn the truth, live the faith, and thrive, please visit our website at christendom.edu. We hope you'll join us again very soon as we continue to point towards some of the rich treasures that our faith in a liberal education can offer. You know, it's easy to fall into a rhythm of going through the motions, of looking past or listening past those things that are truly good and beautiful in our midst. But also, we live in an age that can encourage us to trade the expedient for the challenging, preferring cheap imitations for the real and satisfying things of life. But the cost of the human soul is so great when these two realities impact our worship of God. It's worth asking, if we're not already blessed by the beautiful liturgies, what can we encourage and help take root in our parishes if we seek after what the Church recommends and do so prayerfully and with charity? St. Augustine wrote, I feel that our souls are moved to the ardor of piety by the sacred words more piously and powerfully when these words are sung than when they are not sung, and that all the affections of our soul in their variety have modes of their own, in song and chant, by which they are stirred up by an indescribable and secret sympathy. End of quote. In our liturgies and our lives, let us seek to renew our attention to and fostering of the true, the good, and the beautiful, so that we can hear clearly the voice of God in our souls, being filled with the full measure of wonder he means for us to receive at every stage of this earthly pilgrimage. Have a great day, and may God bless you.